Just a couple of weeks ago when I preached on the birth of Samson, I made a point at the start of the message that one of the lenses that we need to use as we think about the life of Samson is that that Samson was raised up by God to be a saviour, to begin the deliverance of the people of Israel from the Philistines. In fact, as we go back to chapter 13, verse 4, we read the words that we'll throw up here on the screen. Uh, Samson was uh, born to a mother whose name we don't know and the instruction that the angel gave to uh, this unknown woman was this. Let me see if we can get this up. Here we go. Now see to it that you drink no wine or fermented drink and that you don't eat anything unclean. You'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. In other words, God was raising up Samson to be a saviour for his people and God doesn't make mistakes. You need to hold that thought. God was raising up Samson to be a saviour for his people and God doesn't make mistakes. And I want to say to you, it's just as well that we started there because to be frankly honest with you, If all we had was the narrative of Samson's exploits, we might actually be given to wonder where on earth does he fit into God's bigger narrative, God's bigger plan for redemption. As Matt said last week, when the birth was announced, it raised people's expectations. You know, something special was going on. It's not everyone whose birth's announced by God before they're born. I'm looking around at this group and I don't know that any of us would qualify a handful through the scriptures, expectations were very high and yet Samson's actions, while being very dynamic and action-packed, they're actually quite a letdown when it comes to humility and faithfulness and faith. And I'm really glad that we're going to be able to talk about these things here in adult church because can you imagine what would happen if kids' church got hold of some of these stories and unpacked them? My goodness, there's some stuff here that's, that's explosive. It's just as well that we don't do these things in kids' church. But wait, <laughs> we do. We might have to have a conversation about that tomorrow at our staff meeting. What I'd like to do today is to walk briefly through the text of Judges 15 and then confront a question that really exercised me after Matt spoke on chapter 14 last week. In fact, the issue that's exercising me is is represented through both chapter 14 and chapter 15. And that is, how, how do you resolve this tension between the fact that, they, that we are told there are occasions through Samson's life where he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord worked powerfully through him, and yet there's this deeply sinful behaviour that, that is working alongside it. How do you hold that tension? How do you resolve that, that tension? You see, Samson, as we see from the stories, was a man driven by and large by what we might call the baser instincts. Uh, If you have a look at his life, he probably broke six, the latter six of the Ten Commandments, all on one afternoon. There's um, scant evidence, scant evidence in the scripture of him seeking God. 
I can only find one occasion that's recorded and I'll put that caveat on it because not everything in Samson's life is written here but only one occasion where it's recorded that Samson prayed it would appear uh, not to put too fine a point on it that his brain was in his loins and not in his head and yet he's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 32 as one of the heroes of the faith how does that work how can one who does this stuff which is to be frankly honest with you quite tawdry in so many ways be considered a hero of the faith and I've wrestled with this question through this week because we live in a season in the life of the church where with monotonous disturbing regularity we hear of Christian leaders who fail who fall and so this question's kind of thrown at us isn't it how do you reconcile this person who on one in one frame or in one uh, part of life is preaching and teaching and has a powerful ministry but on the other hand has got other stuff going on underneath they're men for the most part and I'll say men who, who have established large and flourishing ministries men who've drawn large crowds men who have challenged and nourished people by their preaching uh, men who have helped Christians worldwide engage with secular culture men whose preaching has led to the salvation of many people but in the case of those who have fallen they were men who were concurrently engaged in uh, illegitimate sexual relationships or were exercising power and control in their ministry in a really ungodly manner who perhaps were abusing vulnerable people or who were hiding habitual and destructive sin how do you balance that stuff and for me the story of Samson kind of raised it and it's a question that I thought you know what we need to talk about this because this is the stuff of life isn't it let's not kind of just plaster over these issues they're real issues we've got to own some of these does their behavior those who I've described make their ministry or message illegitimate they're tough questions to wrestle with and they're the sort of questions that I've forced to think about over this past week as we've been reflecting on this text. Let's have a look at the text first. We've read it already this morning. Let me just walk you through it and make a couple of observations. To understand chapter 15, we do need to just back up a little bit into chapter 14, uh, the passage that Matt spoke about last week, because in chapter 14 we learnt that Samson got married. Uh, wonderful aspiration. Uh, Samson's... Uh, modus operandi let's say in this area is perhaps a little dubious because he saw a beautiful woman and he desired her Samson had an eye for a pretty girl and made sure that he got his way in having her it's not a particularly edifying example of how to go about finding a husband or a wife and so those of you who are unmarried amongst us let me not encourage you to do the same let me encourage you to go down a much more godly path in choosing uh, under God's leading a uh, husband or a wife. We found in that passage uh, that uh, Samson decided to gain a new wardrobe for himself and so basically he sought to extort uh, his wedding companions but his plan backfired rather badly when his new wife who was put into an impossible situation revealed the answer to his riddle that he'd posed. In a rage then he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 Philistines, took their garments as payment, then burning with rage he went up to his father's house 
so he left, leaving his bride standing jilted at the altar. Not a particularly attractive uh, set of behaviour either. 30 Philistines. It's interesting just to stop there for a second, take notice of that number that's mentioned at the end of chapter 14. Samson took out his rage on 30 Philistines. This is a fellow who's got, who God is raising up to be a saviour, the deliverer of Israel. 30 is not a very big number, is it? If you're going to deliver the nation from the Philistines, 30, really? It's pretty insignificant. Well, it wasn't to those 30, of course, but in the broader context... You think about Gideon and the Midianites, how many Midianites did he take out? 120,000 or thereabouts. Gideon's knocked over 30. I think if you do the maths, that's like 0.025%. Not very impressive, but here's the point. It's a start. If you go back to Judges chapter 13, uh, verse 5 with me, let's just have a look at that, if it'll come up for us. And Cohen, you're going to have to take over because it's not working from here. Um, Judges chapter 13, verse 5, you'll see there uh, that he was the one who was to begin the deliverance. He wasn't the one who was going to bring it to its fullness. He was going to begin it. And so 30 starts to make sense. 30 was actually just the start of God's work. And here's another interesting little theological reflection. In the book of Zechariah, it's Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10 the prophet issues a warning to the people he says do not despise the day of small things you know when you see something small happening don't despise it because that just might be the start of God's work and if you've ever been outside uh, working as I'm sure all of you have and there's a big storm coming how does it start it's one or two drops isn't it just a few little raindrops and then it grows in intensity in God's work. I guess in some senses that's a metaphor for the way God often works. In the midst of trials, tests, whatever it might be, grief, we sometimes struggle to see God at work. But it's the little things that he starts with. A word of encouragement, a phone call, whatever it might be. You can look back in time and say, wow, I didn't know that was God at work. But it is. And it preempts something that God will do later on and so here we see uh, God starting a work amongst uh, his people with something very small and we mustn't lose sight of the fact in the broader context of what we're talking about this morning that what happened in Ashkelon happened because the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson if you have a look across the text you'll find that phrase is used three times in chapter 14 verse 6 chapter 14 verse 19 chapter 15 verse 14 the spirit of the lord was upon him and so what happened even though it was only amongst 30 was actually god's work we need to hold that thought back to the text samson left in a rage abandoned his new wife her father who at last had managed to marry off his daughter, was probably rubbing his hands together saying, at last, she's gone, terrific. Uh, was somewhat nonplussed by the turn of events, chapter 14, verse 20. He didn't know what to do with a now married and very recently abandoned daughter and so he did the next best thing. He turned to the best man at the wedding and said, what about you, would you take her? <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? And this guy, who probably had an eye for a pretty girl as well, said, yeah, why not? And so off they went and lived not so happily ever after, as the text soon tells us. 
And then Judges chapter 15 verse 1, the passage we've come to today, communicates what has to be one of the most awkward moments in the Bible. Because later on, uh, we don't know how much later on, it says at the time of the wheat harvest, it might be a matter of a couple of weeks or a couple of months, we don't know, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. One thing you can say about Samson is, and this is a positive, he's not a guy who holds a grudge. <laughs> he's gone off in a rage, but now he's back. Can you imagine what her father went through? It'd be nice to think that Samson returned, uh, having seen the error of his ways, that he wanted to apologise for his behaviour, that he wanted to reconcile with this woman that he had on the way back down to where she was, called in at the local florist. He found that they were fresh out of cuddly teddy bears and so he took a goat instead and he went to reconcile. Now guys, let me just say, uh, as a little aside, if ever there is an occasion where you need to eat humble pie, which is a very nourishing meal, uh, maybe goats aren't going to do it in our culture and certainly don't follow the example of Samson because what we see here was that his motivation was not all that pure. In fact it's very obvious that his motivation was not all that pure. He says as soon as he arrived I'm going to my wife's room. Translation I'm going to have sex. I'm really glad the kids church has gone out. <laughs> The father who was sure that he'd seen the last of Samson suddenly sensed the, on, the onset of the most monumental headache that he'd ever had because he'd never expected to see Samson again. He'd given his daughter to another man and even the Philistines had moral standards of some kind. Samson couldn't just go up and have sex with her. What's he going to do? And so his solution uh, is a pragmatic one. He offers his younger daughter and while this might have been appropriate in that cultural context, I hope that his actions are as distasteful and disrespectful of women to you as they are to me because if that's the case and it might sharpen our focus on something important in this text and that is that the Philistines were not good guys. You know, we might think that they're getting a bit of a rough end of the stick here but actually they were far from God. And in a very real sense, what's happening through these stories is that God's judgment, God's justice is being visited upon them. They are not nice, godly people. And that's evident from what we just see here. They are now being judged by God. And as we see from the passage, what happened next is that events degenerated into a cycle of bloodthirstiness and revenge as they went along. Samson went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them together by their tails. I'd love to know how he did that. <laughs> I, I really would. And so would a few farmers I know. How do you get 300 foxes? Wow. He set a burning torch between them, between the pairs. He released them into the countryside. It's at the time of the harvest, so all of the grain has been stooped up in the field. It's bone dry there's grass growing up amongst the vines and the olive trees a fire takes hold and it burns the countryside it burns everything it it basically takes out the philistines cash crops their wheat their grapes their olives it, samson destroys their economy burns everything and so in response, if you come to verse 6, if you're following, the Philistines murdered his father and, uh, sorry, murdered 
Samson's wife and her father fulfilling a threat that they'd made in verse 14 so again very uh, average behavior and in his anger which escalated Samson attacked and killed many of them the old King James Bible if you're in the habit of reading that said he smote them hip and thigh what a great phrase that is he smote them you kind of get this image of body parts flying in all directions right that's how violent and bloodthirsty this stuff is it's a graphic as the text said he was captured by his countrymen who handed Samson over to the Philistines and again the spirit of the Lord came upon him verse 14 and Samson struck down a thousand men with the jawbone of a recently deceased donkey and then as we read when that was over Samson because he was thirsty cried out to the Lord and this is I'd love to spend some more time talking about you know what was his motivation there Uh, it was hardly a a godly humility it's like have you abandoned me now in my moment of need have you given me this great victory and now I have to die of thirst and fall into the hands of these people Um, and again God acted and slaked Samson's thirst and we're told there in verse 20 Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines what a story How can someone whose life seems to be so troublingly bereft of any real evidence of godliness that he's thought of as a hero of faith? He's named in the New Testament as a hero of faith. Does God really use people like that? And what do we do with a Christian leader who at once demonstrates incredible gifting from God and has a significant ministry but is concurrently engaged in deeply sinful behavior now i want to talk about this but i'm going to go really carefully in this space this morning uh, for a couple of reasons Um, because we're moving from an ancient story we can talk about this story ad infinitum and you know try and make some sense of it but when we start talking about what's happening in our world we're talking about lived experience because i know there are people here who have been deeply and personally impacted by the failure of a significant Christian leader in their church or in their lives we all know high profile leaders we hear about them uh, on the news you know leaders who have failed and it's safe to name some of them because they're far removed from us but it's so much more personal and painful when it's people that we've personally known isn't it a pastor or a leader in the church who was exposed as having an adulterous affair with uh, a woman that he was counselling, a deacon who was abusing people, a youth leader who we looked up to, who led us to faith and who has walked away from faith, someone who was dynamic and engaged and encouraging and they've turned their back on faith. What's going on there? someone in a trusted position of authority and responsibility who's broken that trust these are not small matters that we can shrug off easily and it's hard to talk about them isn't it because these are people who've got enormous power and influence in the church we are reminded time and time again when we're doing training in this area and I'll speak very personally as a pastor I have an enormous amount of power when you're working with somebody else it's just the dynamics of the relationship and it's so easy to step over a line and abuse that they were people 
generally who we looked up to, we modelled our faith on, people that we might have aspired to be like, people that encouraged us, walked with us through our grief, sat with us in sickness, took us the journey of, uh, of some loved one who died, heard our deepest secrets, they ate at our table, they sat in our homes, they played with our children, they were popular, they were articulate, they were gifted. For goodness sake, we put money into the offering to support their work and then we feel totally betrayed and trust is broken and let me just say the sense of betrayal and broken trust and emotional distress when this happens is enormous the damage done to the reputation of Jesus and the church is hideous and the wreckage that such failures leave behind them is immense without um, going into detail because this service is being recorded I saw it happen in a church and to tell you the honest truth I don't think that church ever recovered it set something in the culture of the church that just meant that every pastor that came afterwards was pushing water uphill in terms of the spiritual life and dynamics of that church it was something that uh, that church to this day in my view uh, has struggled with so how do we reconcile what on the one hand might have seemed so good with what on the other hand is so bad? Now I don't want to be a grave disappointment to you today but I'm going to stand here and say I don't know that I've got the answer. Well I don't have a neat answer. It's a question that's deserving of a lot of wrestling and a lot of thoughts and a lot of grace I still uh, look I'll be honest here too I still wrestle with my own response with with this kind of experience growing up and it's complicated it's very complicated and I know that these things bring grief to the heart of God I know that these things damage the reputation of the church I've seen that I know and you probably know too of people who have walked away from the faith said I just can't I can't believe this stuff anymore it's all it's it's a sham or appears to be they've just not been able to reconcile those questions just as a little bit of an aside rather an interesting one one of the questions we wrestle with in the church from time to time is why is it that so often young people grow up through the church they hit that band you know young adults head off to university they often walk away from faith sometimes walk away from faith what's going on there one of the things that we posit one of the theories that we posit is that uh, they have been surrounded in the church with a Christian worldview when they go to university they're exposed to a totally different worldview a secular worldview a worldview that advocates things which are in some senses in tension with with the Christian worldview so you know is Jesus the only saviour for instance uh, creation evolution all of those kinds of questions and sometimes we in the church say well you know that's because they embrace this new worldview there's some research I was reading this week which actually challenges that and says that one of the reasons that some when they were asked gave for walking away from the church is that they couldn't reconcile the hypocrisy that they saw they're not being pulled away by a secular worldview they're being pushed away by what they see isn't that sad what a what a indictment on God's people that is 
Having reflected on these past couple of chapters, I think there's some things that we can say by way of observation and encouragement and perhaps challenge. And so uh, I, I offer these to you just to think about, not by any means as the final word, maybe just as a starting word on the subject. Let me just give you six things. First of all, uh, the first thing to say is this, leaders are not God. Only God is God. And one of the pervasive messages of the book of Judges is that human leadership will fail you. Have a look at uh, these men, again, typically men that God raised up, not exclusively through the scripture, but here, typically men that God raised up. They were fallible, they were fallen. Uh, they are a mixed bag. And the challenge of this book, and Matt flagged this early on in our series, is not to look to the leader, but to look to God, because leaders are fallible. Leaders have failings. And indeed, as the history of Israel develops, the people who are surrounded by other nations who have a king say, we want a king, we want a king. And God says, why? I am your king. If you are interested and you want to jump into 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, when the people come to Samuel and say give us a king Samuel says this is what the Lord says if you have a king he will take this he will take your sons he will take your daughters he will take the best of this he will do this he will. it's not a great recommendation and yet they still say give us a king and the challenge of this book is to constantly come back to looking to God as the one who saves not to the leader not to the person who's judging or whatever it might be we balance that with um, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul said to the church, follow my example as I follow Christ, which means I think it's right and proper that we, that we look for godliness in our leaders, that we look to leaders that we can follow, but that's predicated very much on leaders who are following God themselves. I remember uh, years ago a relationship that Diana and I had with a couple in our church. They were... Um, a couple who welcomed us, helped us, and they thought we were the best thing since sliced bread. In fact, I'm pretty confident that in those early days, they believed that we could walk on water. And I can remember thinking, you know, really early on, this is going to end badly. <laughs> this has got to end badly. You see, everyone's great until you get to know them. And there's a saying I really like, the best of men are men at best, and that again is not meant in any sense to be sexist, the best of women are women at best too. And in time it became impossible for Diana and I to live up to these expectations. The pedestal that we were put on was so high, there was only one way to go and that was down. And you know, we just couldn't care in the way they expected, we couldn't love in the way they expected us to love. We were not perfect, we were failures in, in so many ways. And that's so true of all of us. Leaders are not God, only God is God, and only God is perfect. And we need to keep that uh, in sharp focus. By all accounts, God, uh, Samson was not much of a leader, but God actually can use bad leaders. He uses bad leaders to remind us that only he is God and worthy of being followed. This is important. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, Moses uh, speaking the word of the Lord to Pharaoh said I have raised you up God speaking to Pharaoh I've raised you up for this purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed through all the earth in other words God speaking directly to a pagan king Pharaoh who was a pretty rough dude saying I am going to use you to glorify my name God can use bad leaders to bring about good stuff 
God is in the business of doing that. God's also in the business of using uh, poor leaders and leaders who fail to refine us. And there's three ways that God does this. First of all, by showing us what kind of people we are. Now again, let me be really personal. In the experience that I had, one of the questions that you asked is, how am I going to respond? Am I going to let anger take hold of me? Am I going to desire uh, to see justice and retribution done? Can I? Will I? Should I? How can I forgive? See, God uses those kinds of experience to shape us. The indwelling life of the Spirit in us is reflected in the gifts of the Spirit, but did you know the gifts of the Spirit are actually refined and developed through the process of purifying, refining, kind of like in the fire, if you like. Have you ever thought about how you develop patience? Who's a patient person? (laughs) I'm of the view that patience is developed in situations where you have to exercise patience. And kindness is developed in a context where you have opportunities to demonstrate kindness. Forgiveness, true forgiveness, is developed where you have to actually forgive. It's one thing to have ideas about what it is and have it in your head. It's another thing altogether to actually have to do it. And so God uses leaders who fail to show us what kind of people we are. He, uh, secondly, uh, he also uses leaders who fail to teach us to be wise in who we choose to be leaders because a bad mistake uh, it can it can be redeemed as we move on and thirdly and this is significant too um, (laughs) and I might laugh a little bit about this but God can use bad leaders to actually make us desire the reign of Christ you know when you're in a context where things are falling apart you say oh come Lord Jesus just be here with us And in fact, realistically, if we look at our world, whereabouts in the world are people most anxious for the return of Christ? You think about that for a second. Where are are Christians rising up praying, Lord, come, Lord, come? It's countries where they're under dictators and despots. It's not here in the West. We've got it too comfortable. It's too easy for us. It's places where uh, they're in strife, where there's struggles with leaders. And as we um, reflect on the story of Samson, um, there's a couple other important things I think we can say in this space. This one's significant. The validity of the message doesn't depend on the messenger. That's, That's actually really important. The validity of the message does not depend on the messenger. In a really strange passage in Philippians, it's Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. I've always wrestled with this one. Paul is in prison at the time Uh, some people come and say to him hey Paul there's some fellas getting around preaching slandering you uh, preaching Christ out of selfish ambition the passage in Philippians says and you know what if I'd been Paul this is what I would have known I said get out there and stop them get out there and gag them Make sure you tear down their posters off the fences. Don't let their faces be seen everywhere. Don't let them get a foot on. What does Paul say? Doesn't matter. Whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Which suggests to me that actually the validity of the message doesn't depend on the messenger. And one of the things we can say from these chapters in judgment is that despite 
the tawdry nature, despite the really fractured nature of Samson's behaviour in dealing with the Philistines, despite the enormity and the obviousness of his moral failings, God's purposes and activity will not be thwarted. They will continue. And God's judgment on these Philistines is right and true. And in the same way, the message preached by some of those who have failed is not invalidated by their failure because ultimately the God who sits behind the message is true and right. We need to test their message. We need to make sure it's consistent with the scripture. But God's truth will always be truth. Related to that, our fifth observation, another important one in light of what I've talked about this morning is this. Spiritual giftedness doesn't necessarily equate to spiritual maturity. It's really easy to be sucked in by this one. Because we can look at someone up the front who's manifesting all these wonderful gifts and speaks so eloquently and appears to have it all together and yet other stuff's going on in the background you could say the same of Samson he did some amazing things as he was filled powerfully by the spirit of God but you could hardly say he lived a sanctified life and I think this is an observation uh, worth reflecting on in our age where uh, we have become so enamored by personality you know we've just gone through an election process and it's all about the person at the top you know which prime minister is the most preferable what a sad state of affairs that is and it's easy to be drawn into that and just look at that stuff spiritual depth is an elusively difficult thing to identify and just because the church has great music like we've had this morning or great preaching like we're having this morning yes um, <laughs> just because a pastor can stand up there and weave a wonderful story and evoke an emotional response don't be fooled by that stuff look for the deeper things the spiritual maturity that needs to be there if it's to be uh, valid the last thing I want to say uh, changing gear a little bit too in this um, is to be gracious towards those whose faith has been shipwrecked and I'm sure there have been people out of this church who have disappeared unable to reconcile some of these things I had a friend in Melbourne his name was Phil who said to me um, at the time when um, one of the uh, most recent luminaries of Christian faith fell very spectacularly he said I had a crisis of faith this guy is an Anglican minister he said I I loved this guy's teaching I used some of his material I went to seminars and then this and all of a sudden it's like what do I do and Phil fortunately has deep roots but there have been so many others who face the same kind of crisis and have walked away from the church what do you do in that space well one of the things that we can do is say uh, you know if someone walks away maybe they weren't really Christians at all or perhaps um, they must have had weak faith but those responses fly in the face of what the scripture teaches because the scripture tells us we don't know another person's heart and if you jump into Romans chapter 14 it tells us really clearly about how we ought to treat others whose faith might be weak I think the only response in this space that we should make is to acknowledge that the sort of things that we have talked about this morning are a blight on the church 
and we need to own that. We need to confess and agree that the behaviour that has resulted in this failure is sinful behaviour. Let's call it sin, not just a momentary lapse of judgement, not just a, a, a poor decision, it's sin. And that that has an impact, an enormous impact on many people. We need as a community, Christian community, to repent from the times that we have accepted this behaviour as something that just happens because we're human and uh, repent from our desire just to kind of sweep it under the carpet and move on. That doesn't do anyone any good. And even in this place there might be opportunities if you're in conversation with someone to actually express remorse, an empathetic expression of remorse and say, you know what, I feel your pain and I'm sorry that you're in that place. Could I graciously direct you to Jesus who never fails? who never falters, who is truth in purity. And in all of this, we need to acknowledge that all of us are actually only one bad decision away from disaster, one choice away from a ruined reputation, one ill-considered action that can have an enormous impact on those who trust us, one click on our computer that can lead us down a chain of events that we might not be able to control. We are all in need of daily grace. We are all in need of accountability to one another. We all need transparent relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't often talk about this in the context of a sermon, but this is one of the reasons why we as a church are committed to what we call a safe church process. It's why when we're looking at volunteers, we insist on training, on, on uh, uh, ministry vetting, making sure that people who are serving with us understand the dynamics of relationship, the responsibilities that we have. We do that not to say, you know, keep out the bad, but to embrace the opportunity that there is for us to acknowledge that we need to express love in how we care for one another that we need to be mindful of how our relationships work one with another because we want to fulfil the biblical mandate to care properly for one another, to protect the witness of our church, to protect your witness and my witness. And it's the reason why um, in the case of Matt and Kendall and Bethany and I, we go through an accreditation process where we have to agree to a code of ethics where we have to undertake training to understand how that's to be applied, that we work with, uh, with one another in terms of accountability and a training and awareness. I spent a day in Melbourne with the Baptist Union at their um, pastor's gathering on Friday and every time we're together we talk about these things because in the broader context of our denomination we realise how important this is and how clear we need to be about these things. And how easy it is to fall in this space. Because our desire, my desire, our church's desire is that uh, in time we will hear these words, well done good and faithful servant. And that we together can stand uh, acknowledging that we've walked faithfully with God, that we have cared for people properly, that we have related in healthy ways. Folks, this morning I'm mindful that for some of you, some of the things that we've just talked about might have um, triggered some stuff. Some of you perhaps have walked through experiences or circumstances either similar to what I've described or related to what I've described. 
uh, and it's important that there's an opportunity even here to deal with some of that. And so again, as is normally our practice after our service, there'll be some folks here to pray. I'm going to ask a couple of our elders just to be on hand too because we're a bit light on our prayer team this morning. But if you would like to just talk with someone about this or pray through some of this with someone, then I encourage you to do so. Don't leave today if there's stuff that's nagging away at you that you need to deal with. And in the same way, if there's some things that um, you want to deal with, feel free to give Matt or myself a call. Make a time to catch up through the week. Matt's available this week. I'm actually at another <laughs> Baptist pastors conference Tuesday through Thursday, so it's going to be a bit trickier learning about this stuff. Um, but we would welcome the opportunity to uh, engage with you and perhaps bring healing into a place where there has been hurt. But let's pray as we conclude. Father, we want to thank you again uh, for your word. Wow, it's a tough passage again. We're mindful of some of the stuff that's going on in this chapter that... Um, uh, has been uh, it has been the grist of kids church for years but gee when we scratch the surface Lord it's pretty heavy and serious we thank you Lord and we give you praise and glory because you're a God whose purposes are perfect whose character is pure whose truth is always truth whose love is expressed in perfect ways and we like Samson are flawed and imperfect in so many ways Lord the things that we have reflected on this morning are difficult and and realistically for some here very personal and in some cases still quite painful and we know Lord that you long to heal that, that you long to bring restoration, that you long to bring new life. And so we pray today that your spirit will be at work in our hearts, that we'll be open to you, that we won't plaster over these issues and hope that they just never throw up anything. Because we know when we bury things, Lord, they have a bad habit of coming back to bite us at the very wrong times. So God, by your spirit today, bring the response in each of us that you long to bring. And Father, we do pray that you'll help us to fulfil the law of Christ as we care for one another, as we love one another, as we support one another, as we urge one another on in the work of the kingdom, as we pray for one another, as we keep one another accountable, as we journey together because it's our desire, Lord, that your name be glorified, that your kingdom grow, that the name of your church, not our church, but your church will be a good one through our community, that the name of Jesus will be respected, that the name of your people will bring life. And so we commit ourselves, our time, our service into your hands now. Amen.